0: And what's up, everybody, and welcome to the TJ Bowser Power Hour. Thank you for joining me on the first episode of my new show. This is, of course, your host with the motherfucking most, TJ Bowser. And I got a very special guest for this first episode of the new show. Joining me today is actor, writer, And director now Trent Haga welcome
1: to the show here I am yeah what's going on thanks for having me inaugural show congratulations Uh, you know since this will be one of your least viewed shows uh, I'm a great guest (laughs) right hey I watched the
0: Killjoy movies not too long ago and I just fell in love with your work and then that just led into the rabbit hole of exploring everything else you've done so it's been a crazy couple of weeks man
1: i can only imagine i don't know if you made it to the lifetime movies or played the video game or anything like that but uh i've been the depth and the breadth and the highs and the lows of this uh six
0: movies and a video game in man i'm, I'm doing pretty good nice, nice. <laughs> but uh let's just uh get the interview underway man so when uh what influenced you into getting into the business and uh where did you get your start
1: Uh, well, you know, I uh, grew up in Western Kentucky when I was a little kid. We had a drive in, this was pre VHS, it was uh when you're only three channels on the TV, so movies were like a big event, you know. And my mom and dad were like, We're gonna get in the car and go to the drive in where I would watch the Ray Harryhausen movies and stuff like that. And I guess I always just had a natural inclination towards cinema and fantastic cinema, and the weirder, the better, even when I was a little kid. And uh, then, of course, they invented the VCR, and I was finally able to see all the things like uh, *Escape from New York* and *The Road Warrior* and whatever that my parents wouldn't let me see when I was a kid. And uh, I ended up being a video store clerk, and I was always the kid that was into the, the weird movies, which was, you know, before the internet. You guys just don't understand. Like, I didn't realize there were other people that were like me. I didn't realize any of this stuff. I. Uh, uh, It was, it was a totally different world. You know, if you're a person who's into strange genre movies and you live in a small town in Kentucky and you, you know, go to school with 60 kids in your class, none of them watch the same stuff. They don't get it. They don't understand. Um, so, uh, it was a little bit harder row to hoe back in the day. And I remember getting ready to leave, uh, high school and, uh, graduate. And I was working at a video store and I was really into this stuff and uh my parents were like look you got to go to college and i figured i would just go work in the coal mines when i got out of college like my dad and so i was like you know what if i'm going to do this i want to go to film school and in 1990 you know there just weren't even that many film schools around uh it wasn't like a thing like it is now um so I went I went to film school and then I promptly got a job working in a completely unrelated industry and eventually got into the internet world where I was the entertainment content uh, coordinator for CompuServe and uh, that meant that I was just like scanning slides. I was like trying to get news stories. And Trauma had just gotten a website. I was a big fan of theirs, from USA up all Night when I was a kid and and then watching their movies on PHS. And they were looking for extras for this movie, Terror Firmer. And I went to my boss and said, listen, let me take uh, the afternoon off. I'm going to go audition to be an extra in this movie. And if I can get in, I'll go shoot for a day, take pictures and write a story and put them up on CompuServe as part of the entertainment thing. And they said, okay. And I just kept getting called back and called back. I didn't have a headshot. I didn't have a resume. I mean, I was a film fan, but I never even considered acting or being in a movie. And I was just like, if I could just do this one thing, if I could just do this one thing, be an extra in a trauma movie, I'll (laughs) go back to my cubicle forever. And everything will be, you know, I I will have gotten to do that. And I ended up playing a pretty big role in the movie. And I mean, I got a taste and it was like, I I liken it to i I've never done heroin but I hear that you take that first hit (laughs) and you're just chasing the dragon the rest of the time. And I feel like I've just been chasing the dragon of the high I got off of terra firmer. Uh, I've gotten really close a bunch of times over the last 20 years, but that was the one Lloyd Kaufman, you know, that gave me a shot to, to, you know, be, a, be in this movie. And, uh, while I was there, I slipped him a couple of screenplays I had written and he was like, Oh, you know how to write, I'm doing the toxic <laughs> Avenger part four. And I quit my job and I went and did the toxic Avenger four and there was no looking back after that.
0: Hell yeah. So what has been the most challenging thing you've encountered since you started filmmaking? <sighs>
1: Uh, I mean, I think it's a day to day. It's a day to day challenge to try to get generate or get more work and getting paid to do the work that you do. You know what I mean? Nowadays, uh, everybody's like, "Look, I want to." For the first five, six, seven, ten years, you know, you're taking things on because you're like, "I want the experience." Oh, you're going to let me write a movie? I will take virtually no money to do this to have the experience then you do that a bunch of times and you're like now I'm an experienced guy and people still want to like lowball you all the time you know so i think making a living being able to pay your bills while creating this stuff is probably the biggest challenge i mean you know but being on set and trying to get a movie done while there's a certain amount of daylight while you've got six people in makeup and you're having a car crash and whatever or also there's the day to day Physical challenges of production. And I mean, there's a myriad stories from that. But I would say the hardest thing over the 20 years that I've been doing this has been just how do I feed my family doing this? How do I keep the lights on doing this? And, uh, and I, you know, I, harsh, but it's true. You know what I mean? That's, that's the, you know, uh, especially at this level, making the kind of movies that I want to make, kind of crazy things, kind of challenging things, you know, uh, uh, Movies that are for more of a niche audience, or the movies that I want to see, it's really difficult to to live. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So you are known for both acting and writing. What do you find to be more difficult, and why?
1: Uh I find writing to be more difficult all the way. I mean not that uh I've I've done everything on set. I've PA'd many many years. I've uh you know when I called that's a wrap on my first film that I directed, my next job 3 days later was filling up coolers for a music video as a <laughs> PA. I've boomed. I've done craft services. I've worked in the art department. I've directed. I've written. I've produced. I've done it all. And uh uh you know Acting is the most fun, and you know I'm sorry, actors, and I love you, and I love working with you, but it's definitely the least labor-intensive uh, job on the set. <laughs> so writing is definitely is way harder, way harder. You don't have anybody to give you feedback initially. You're alone, uh, uh, questioning your every move, every word that goes down the entire time. It takes a, a concentrated, lengthy amount of, of time to do it. Uh, it actually takes me longer to write now than it did when I was first starting out because I know what I'm doing now, but, but back then I didn't have fear. I didn't have the experience or I wasn't scrutinizing my own work as much. And now I do. And so, although my writing is, is way better than it was, it's also a lot harder to do. You know? Okay. Awesome. So what are some of your favorite
0: films that you got to work on while you were with
1: Trauma? Uh, well, you know, I only what I did with trauma is I did a uh, terror firmer, which, like I said, was my entree into the film world. And I was an actor. So I wasn't really required to do a bunch of horrendous, laborious sweat work. Uh, uh, so it was... Great Toxic Avenger four I wrote I produced I assisted directed I acted in it I cast it, I did everything for it a huge amount of work but I uh, you know for God's sake I got to you know be one of the authors of a Toxic Avenger movie so I was it was a very heady experience and it was very exciting uh, I did Trauma's Edge TV for them where I was the host we did a bunch of episodes of that for UK's Channel Four and I wrote Lloyd's book so uh, and I worked in the office just being Lloyd's general go to guy setting up. Up, uh, uh, book signings and 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 appearances and in his schedule and everything like that. So I did a lot for trauma, but I only did two movies, and they were both amazing experiences. They were my first two movies out of the gate, and uh, I would consider them both to be bona fide cult classics. You know, it's not like I came out and did a trauma movie and then I did some in- insane micro budget backyard type stuff. Um, so I can't. I can't honestly say one experience was better because the, I was learning two different things. The first time, Patera Farmer obviously was you know, was the best. I was just a kid off the street who had been watching Lloyd Kaufman movies my whole life. And now here I was acting in one and getting directed by the man himself. Uh, uh, so I'd have to say that was the best experience ever. What has been your favorite film you worked on and your worst? Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, the favorite, obviously, I'm going to have to say 68 Kill. It's my most recent movie. It's the one that I wrote and directed. I got to make all the decisions. So, whether or not you like it or hate it is very much on my shoulders. You know what I mean? A lot of the other times when you write something and you give it to someone else and you're not on the set, you can't control a lot of things. So, uh, having that level of control on 68 Kill... Working with a caliber of actor that I thought was uh, was was a little bit higher than I'm used to working on, having it you know win the audience award at South by and get a small theatrical run and then get released all around the world and then come out on Netflix was a was a great thing. It was very vilifying for me to know that I could you know do something at that level. So I mean that was great. Oh my god! But the worst, I mean, somebody's gonna somebody's not somebody's gonna see this and not like that at all. <laughs> uh, you know. It's, it, I guess it depends on if you're talking about the final product or the experience. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 there are movies that I've worked on that have been fine and everybody was lovely, but when I watched the final movie, I was really disappointed in it. And there were movies that uh, just the 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 pay and the physical labor and everything. The movies turned out okay, but they were, the actual experience of it was like pretty terrible. And I've got... I got handfuls of both of those. <laughs> and I, I guess, I don't know. I can't name names, but like something like, for instance, Chad Barrett's The Goals, which I think is a really, really solid little low-budget movie that we shot for very little money here in L.A. And uh, uh, it was I think the movie itself is great, but the physical experience of it uh, shooting in skid row with no permits from you know sundown till sun up afraid you're either going to get shanked by a hobo or mm-hmm. arrested and then no toilets and you're going to the bathroom you know where 8000 syphilitic hepatitis people have like been shooting up or whatever. You know, you're just like, Oh, why am I, what am I doing, man? What, what am I fucking doing? But, uh, you know, but that movie turned out okay. So, you know, I hate to waffle on that worst experience, but I'm going to be nice and just be like, you know, I've made some winners and I've made some losers. That's what happens when you make as many products as I have.
0: Okay. So what are some of the main inspirations
1: behind your portrayal of the killjoy character? (laughs) <laughs> wow. Okay. So, you know, so what happened is the first Killjoy movie came out when I was still living in New York and and, and working for Trauma. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing it at the video store and Patrick Cassidy, who co-wrote Terra Firmer and also co-wrote Citizen Toxie with me and I were friends. And we rented Killjoy because we were like, what's the magic of the full moon movies? Like, why is it that he keeps making these movies, but Lloyd can only make a movie every year or two or something like that? And uh, so we rented these mo- this movie, Killjoy, and it was like, you know, we were, we were laughing at it. Lo and behold, a few years later, I moved to LA and I get a call from J.R. Bookwalter, who had been introduced to me by Debbie Rashawn, who I worked with on Terra Firmer, and they were looking for somebody to come in and just do production work, be a producer for Killjoy 2. So I was like, great, man, I'll take a job. And I went and met with the director and we had about 12 days of prep and we had to cast this thing and find all the locations and do everything. And I was talking to the director and, uh, you know, I said, Hey, we got to get killjoy cast up. What about the guy who played him in the first movie? She was like, he doesn't want to do it. And I was like, well, no problem. We'll just find somebody approximately that tall and thin and uh, <laughs> physically the same. And she was like, well, I was thinking, you know, you've acted in some stuff. I've seen you and you're going to be there every day. Cause you're already a producer. So, Maybe you could just play. It would be cheaper and easier for the whole production. And since I was the producer, I was like, okay, I'll do it. Uh, and I didn't know... I. I I didn't really watch the first movie. It was just a matter of once you put all that shit on your face and you put in the teeth and you put in the context and you put in the costume, and you look at yourself in the mirror. uh, You just kind of like people ask me to do the Killjoy voice all the time. And I'm like, I can't do it. I can't. I have to have the shit on. Uh, But honestly, I was so busy sort of making sure the locations were secure and that we had gas in the van and everything like that, that I didn't really have much time to think about like how Killjoy was going to go. And I'm not really an actor. And so I was like, whatever happens, you know, uh, uh, I will be able to do consistently. Yeah. And so it was only later that I look at it and I'm like, okay, maybe there's some Beetlejuice in there. <laughs> there's a little bit of that Michael King thing, but I also feel like the character sort of shifted too. In the first movie I was asked to be like scary killjoy because yeah. I'm still kind of a slasher Jason or whatever. And then as he became more of a character, I was able to, uh, you know, work in sort of what I like about Killjoy is he's sort of always frustrated, even though he's ultimately kind of powerful. A lot of times he's powerless around all the dumb situations that are happening around him. And as an independent filmmaker, I understand that feeling a lot. And uh, I'm just able to tap into my own personality a little bit when I'm doing Killjoy. What is your craziest story from the set of a Killjoy film?
2: (sighs) Well, you know what? (laughs)
1: uh (laughs) there's not i don't really have a lot of crazy stories the craziest thing about the killjoy movies is how every time we make one they keep getting we we get less and less money and less and less time to do them and yet they still come out uh, approximately the same so i can understand what charles (laughs) band is thinking you know the first time we did it it was like you have eight days to shoot this and you have like thirty five thousand dollars the next one they were like let's do this one in six days and we'll give you $30,000. $30,000. So and the next one, the last one we did was, uh, you know, I think uh, Killjoy Psycho Circus, we shot the entire movie in five days. Wow. And the budget was, I don't even know, we shot it all in one location. And I mean, when you're doing something in five days, it's like, hey, Trent, here's the uh, 20 pages that we're doing today, right? <laughs> you know, and oh, oh, by the way, you just got the script like two days ago. So you're just going to have to learn this on the fly and we just do them. I guess the craziest aspect is the fact that we shot part three in China. You can't tell because it was all done on sound stages, Jeez. but we shot it in Guangzhou, China with, uh, I think the DP and John LaTago, the director and the main actors were Americans who flew in, but everyone else in the crew were all Chinese who didn't speak any English, who had just learned had been we learning how to use all the equipment while we were there, but they had these big sound stages and they had construction experience and whatever. And so we went there and shot it. Uh, so that was, that was pretty wild, man. That's that's awesome. And it was like, yeah, yeah. It was like monsoon season, so it was like mega crazy, humid, and hot. <laughs> oh. And you're underneath all shit, and it's not like lunch is coming. And I can just pull it all off and like cool down or whatever. Yeah. It's on there, It's on there until they use special glue to uh, shit to take it off. And you know, no matter how hot or uncomfortable or whatever you are, you're living in that for like 16 hours. You know, that's um, oh that has to be horrible so you wrote and
0: directed the film 68 kill what was that experience like more some of the challenges you faced while creating that film
1: uh yeah well uh, it was based on a book by an author named brian smith who i've been a fan of for many many years and who had had some moderate success with traditional publishing so i'd read his paperbacks but then amazon and the kindle and everything came out and a lot of authors that i like started to pull out older books that maybe hadn't been published or or things they were doing self-publishing, and I read this book by him. He's normally like a horror author. This one was sort of like a this crazy whack-a-doodle crime thing. And I was like, I really like this dude. I like this story. I think it's adaptable. I think I could do it within the budget. Uh, let me give that a shot. I'd never done it before. I reached out to him. I optioned the material, uh, you know, directly from him. Neither of us have lawyers. Neither of us have managers or agents or representatives, and we just did it. And uh, then I adapted it. I think once again, the hardest thing with that with with a movie like that is uh finding a producer that's willing to do it, getting in line and waiting your turn in the queue behind the other three movies that <laughs> they have to do. And every movie that you think needs to they're like, We got this one, it's gonna be next, we're gonna shoot it in the next six months. That ends up being nine months, that ends up being a year, and then there's another one. And so the sort of like the weight uh to get there and a lot of the times you're like uh meeting actors you're casting not all the funding is in place you're moving forward as if the movie's going to go but realizing in the back of your mind that the carpet could be yanked out from you at any time once that like uh real money's being spent and you're in new orleans and like people have signed contracts and everything like that uh you know uh it gets a lot Easier because now you can actually think about making the movie as opposed to what will happen if, you know, the lead actor who my movie is incumbent upon breaks his leg, you know, (laughs) snowboarding two days before or whatever. There's all kinds of things that can happen that can scuttle the production. And that's always for me the absolute worst time is the time between someone saying, Yes, I'm interested and we're going to do this and standing on set and saying action for the first time. It's terrible, it's nerve wracking. So you got to write for the video games, the
0: evil within one and two, what was that experience like? And how is that different from the other stuff you have done?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's vastly different. You're talking about, uh, uh, you know, multiple choice type of scenarios as opposed to, uh, you know, our active players as opposed to passive viewers, you know what I mean? Not only that, but I'm working with a team of people that are Japanese uh, many of whom don't speak English. I ended up getting a job on the first one because I knew someone at Bethesda GameWorks who had read some of my stuff, and she, uh, they had finished the first game. They had done some testing. There was a lot of like sort of story confusion with uh, the test players, and the game was just like maybe two months out from release. And so they flew me to the East coast and put me in the secret room. And I played the secret game for a couple of days. And they said, what do you think? And I was like, well, this is great. But I'm like confused about these plot points. And they were like, great, this is exactly what all the players were giving us notes about. Can you come up with solutions? And I said, well, look, what if uh, it's too late to change the game significantly? You can't rerecord the dialogue, but what if uh, the player can find all kinds of newspaper clippings and diary entries and all these kind of things like that, that can, uh, Fill in some of the gaps in the backstory, and they were like, That's great, it doesn't take up that much data. And so, I wrote like sort of all that stuff in the first game. And then they did a DLC, and I did a little bit more intensive work on that. Uh, You know, and I would have to call the guys and Skype with them in Japan at weird hours because of the time difference or whatever. So, when it came down to uh, doing part two, they had been doing it for a while and they were foreseeing some of the same problems that they had with part one. The game was like, The story was written, some levels were built, but there was still like, you know, whatever. And Bethesda called me up and they were like, can you come out and pitch your services? I flew to the East coast. I said, yeah, I'd love to be able to do this. And they were like, look, uh, one thing is though, you got to go to Tokyo and you got to be there and you have to work with these guys. And it was like December and I was like, okay, yeah, I can do that. And they were like, but we're really under a crunch and they called me up on like december 12th and they were like can you fly to tokyo in like three days i didn't know anybody there i didn't whatever and and uh they were like and you're coming back in may and i was like whoa whoa, christmas dude whatever And they're like japan they don't really do christmas (laughs) you know i was like my wife's birthday everything all you know i've got two kids and uh they were like look we can't worry about that this game is the most important thing that came to, got off the phone and went to my wife and was like, look, man, they're asking me to go to Tokyo in like three days and I'm not going to be back for months. You know? Oh. Uh, and my wife was like, are you kidding me? And I was like, yeah, but here's how much they're paying me. And she was like, get on that fucking plane. I'll see you <laughs> day. Yeah. The, biggest difference, the biggest difference between working on a video game and an independent film is that video games, like you've got budgets, you know? Yeah. So definitely the biggest paycheck I ever got. And, uh, it was really cool just to work in a foreign country with people making a new sort of uh, form of entertainment that I'd never done before. I had a learning curve, uh, but I wrote a vast amount. Every time, every line of dialogue, every uh, description of every like item that you'd find in there, every uh, sign in English on the wall, everything you know, everything. I wrote every everything on the on the second game. So it was a very intensive and you know, look, I'm a writer. Like sometimes you got to, go out and go for a walk and stare off into space. Or, you know, you're getting high and watching junky movies at night and you come up with ideas. That's what writing is. But this was like Japan. It was like, you come in here every day at 9am, you sit in this chair, here's a list of all the stuff you need to write <laughs> and it needs to be done. And you're going to do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And we'll give you Saturday and Sunday off and you're going to come back next week and we're going to do it again. Oh, you know? Shit. And, uh, so it was like writing is a job, which I mean, I guess it is, but, you know, there it was Japan. Yeah, you show up, sit there for ten or eleven hours. They need to see what you're doing. Those keyboards need to be clacking, you know. And so, uh, I think a lot of people that I know that are also writers would not have been able to handle that that thing. It was almost like digging a ditch or working on a farm, except for a video game. You know. So, what was it like writing uh, for It Came from the Desert? <laughs> Well that one was uh a, a you know it's sort of a rewrite. they already yeah. had a script they had a start date uh it was written by a European guy whose English was the second language and you know they just they had what they they wanted just to polish so there was a dialogue pass and then like a lot of character work and things like that uh but the general idea of it's a sequel to this old game or, you know and and uh uh it's motocross guys in the desert, New Mexico. I mean, a lot of that was already established. So I couldn't even tell you, I mean, I probably rewrote like a good, I don't know, like a third of the movie. Uh, but I, Honestly, I can't remember. (laughs) I can't remember what my contributions to that movie were or not, but I do, I did several passes, you know, based on their notes and they were really happy with it. And I, you know, I, my, my writing was significant, but I couldn't tell you a specific thing that I did, uh, that I was like, oh yeah, that part, that was mine. I think there was, uh, in the movie, there's like a, um, like a old 1950s propaganda film type thing Yeah, and i can't remember if i came up with that you know i think i came up with that i don't i don't remember i don't remember like you for all the movies that you see on the IMDb that i have written mm-hmm. there's also like at least 50 that i've written that never went anywhere or that i got paid to do work on that never oh, got wow. shot you know what i mean it's how you uh you, you see all the work that i've done and then you need to multiply that by at least double or triple for the amount of work I've done in my life. You know what I mean? So there's still, there's so much work out there that I've done in 20 years of doing this, man. Sometimes I forget exactly what what I did.
0: <laughs> okay. So you got to work on the yeah. recent film Girl on the Third Floor featuring CM Punk. What was that like?
1: Uh, well, you know, okay, another, another situation where I worked with Travis Stevens, who was the director of that, and he also produced 68 Kill. He produced cheap thrills. Uh, I acted in a couple of his movies and he's done. We're really good friends. And he was gonna direct this movie. And uh, so he and I sat down and sort of cracked the story, did a whole bunch of treatments. And then, like I said, six months go by, they don't make it. Then they change their minds a little bit about what has to be done. And then we crack a couple more treatments. And I think originally I was supposed to write the screenplay too, but I asked for too much money and they were like, no. And I finally got to the point where I'm like, you know what? I'll, I'll take the story by credit and you can use my treatment as like groundwork for this, but I just can't Dedicate the amount of time that I that I need to 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 write this for the amount of money you're giving me. And so they made Travis do. Oh. <laughs> so I wrote I, I co-wrote the story, but uh, uh and you know, I didn't I wasn't on set, they shot that in Chicago, but I did go to the LA premiere and had dinner with uh with, with Phil Brooks, aka CM Punk, and his wife, who apparently is another wrestler. I yes. don't know much about that world. Oh yeah. They were like super cool. <laughs> yeah, what what's her name?
0: Uh I can't remember her name but I know she is a wrestler and I think she's still employed by the yeah. WWE. Yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So I met them and had dinner with them but uh I you know I don't really know a lot about wrestling but they were a really cool couple, really nice and uh you know.
0: Yeah. So last question <laughs> before you go, you recently got to work with Joe Castro on a project. Can you talk about that and what that was like?
1: Uh yeah, although I haven't we haven't shot the movie yet. So my only experience in Joe so far, which was amazing, was I went to a shop and I got my head cast. Uh, I'm acting in a movie. It's called an American Masquerade. It's done by these uh guys from Australia who are coming out here to shoot a movie. And uh Black Forest Films is is what they're called. And what's interesting is that I was Sitting in the airport in LAX, uh, getting ready to fly to Tokyo, not knowing anybody there, not knowing what I was going to do. And I get a Facebook message from these Australians who are like, hey, Trent, man, look, we're just big fans of your work. And we wanted you to take a look at the trailer for our movie. Uh, uh, oh, shit. They're going to kill me if I forget. Uh Oh, uh, anyway, <laughs> I forgot, <laughs> I forgot what it's called, but, but they, they sent me the trailer for the Yakuza Mondo Yakuza is what it was called. Okay. And so I walked the trailer and I was like, wow, this is really weird. But I'm, I happen to be like getting on a plane, going to Tokyo right now. And the guy writes me back in like five minutes while I'm still at the airport. He's like, really? Cause we're going to be in Tokyo shooting our new movie, the Vipers hacks in like three weeks. And we're also having the premiere of Mondo Yakuza here at, at, in, in Tokyo. So I was like, all right, well, I'll be there. And I ended up hanging out with these guys, befriending them. They were like, you know, uh, when you're working in a place where 99% of the people don't speak English, like all day, every day, being able to hook up with some like uh, foreigners that speak English was like life saving. So I went to the screening of their movie and kind of like hung out with them. And then they went off and shot their movie and they came back for a couple of days and we hung out. And then we all went out to dinner last night and they took off. And I thought, well, those guys are great, but I'll never see them again. And then they ended up taking a trip to the States and it was their first trip here. And we hung out in LA and they went to Vegas and all over the place. And they were like, we want to make a movie here. So now they're coming here and doing a movie much like they did in Tokyo, but in America. And Joe is a special effects guy. And I went and got my head cast. Not going to tell you what happens to my character. <laughs> and I'm sure I'll work with Joe again while he's there doing all the stuff. But uh uh, You know Joe's legendary. I know of Joe. Obviously, I've seen Joe's movies. I know mm-hmm. a million people who know Joe. So it was cool to finally, you know, be able to power to powwow with him. Hell yeah! Well, thank, I'm looking forward to working. Well, thank you Apple. for coming
0: on uh, the first episode of the Power Hour, man. I really appreciate it. It's awesome to be able to talk with Killjoy and you. It's just yeah. Oh, it's I'm you Killjoy. <laughs> you are Killjoy, man. That that that's that's crazy. That literally a couple of weeks ago, I was like, I need to have this guy on my show. And now, now it's come to life. Thank you for making that uh happen, man.
1: And no problem, man. The internet, it's a hell of a thing, man. It's it a hell of a thing. So uh, good luck with the podcast. And thanks for having me on. And uh, keep an eye out for my shit when it comes out. Absolutely. Okay, man. Uh, talk to you later. All right. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Bye. Hey, guys. And stay tuned for more on this episode. We are not done yet. Here is a little commercial. From our friends at Brown Space Films. Guys, here you go.
2: Hey, pissants. This is the fucking TJ Bowser Power Hour.
0: I'd like you to meet Angelica Jarvis.
1: My dad is missing. He thinks Jason is back and he's probably gone after him again.
0: But what about the rumors? What about the rumors that there's a homicide investigation? Rumors? I don't deal in rumors, kid. But what about Jason? Dad left you a note on the table. Please ah. like look
1: after your sister. I don't know when I'll be home. you ah. know not as well as me.
2: Whatever happened to his dad? Passed away. Alone and grieving from the sound of it. Sounds like he really loved his kid. A lot. He's back.
0: Okay, guys, and welcome back to the TJ Bowser Power Hour. And this is the discussion portion of the show. And uh, we're waiting for a special guest to come on and join me, the guy who is behind the creation of the blacksmith mask. Uh, We'll see if he pops in here. But we have a couple fan questions from you listeners out there. Here he is. Jarrett will be popping in here real soon. There he is. What's up, buddy? What up? How's it going? Hey, everybody. Welcome Jarrett Von Jekyll to the Power Hour. We are live on Facebook right now. So let's answer some questions here, Jarrett. From Brody over on Instagram at Brody.Kane. Out of all of the horror movies that you've seen, what's your favorite production design? I'll let you go first, Jarrett.
2: Oh first okay I have no short answers but uh <laughs> you know what production design means to other people you know might mean something different to myself um but I don't know horror movies to have particularly you know spectacular production design um the closest example that I could think of in any recent memory would be the shape of water not necessarily a horror movie but uh, has horror elements. And, uh, but the, the production design is really great in that movie. And, um, and what production design means to me and why I think that is a spectacular example is because the, they do a great job with the lighting, set design, and color grade in post and it, it creates this really, really great, beautiful, cohesive spectacle. And I think that that's, that's a good sign of of good production design.
0: Okay. Uh, I would have to say for me, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, mainly because uh, each of the dream sequences are so different and the uh, production design assists in that and really allows you to set the mood and atmosphere for that particular sequence. Uh, so that will be my short answer for that question so from james at instagram at ninja nightmare studios 2018 what horror movie characters that have came out since 2000 would you put in the big four Jarrett?
2: well you know it's also like for that it's you know what is the criteria that we're using to measure what the big four is there in the first place is it because they have you know 17 movies in each franchise like, I, I, I don't know what the criteria would be. Uh, if, if that's our measuring stick and our measuring bar is they have a bunch of movies in their franchise and they're semi-successful, then I guess I would say saw, but it does, they don't, there's not one, you know, icon to put on it. Jigsaw dies in the third movie and you just have, I guess, the puppet. But that, I guess that would be my answer. I'm, I'm not really sure about that. I, That is also another
0: hard question to answer because I don't think a movie has really come out since 2000 that's that iconic or that has resonated that hard in pop culture. I agree. Yeah. Nothing's worthy, I guess. So next question from Taylor over Instagram at Mummy Dahlia. What's a good convention you like going to and what's it all about? So, Jarrett, you can't really answer this question because you don't really go to conventions.
2: Nope. I've never been to a convention, unfortunately.
0: Okay. So, I normally go to Steel City Comic Con here in Pittsburgh, and I also go to uh, the Monster Mania Cons. And also this year, I will be going to Chiller Theater and Memento Con and Living Dead Weekend, also in Monroeville here. Uh, but I highly recommend Monster Mania Con, ran by Dave Hagan. It is a wonderful convention, very friendly people, awesome lineup every year, very good uh, hotel that they have it in, and it's a very well organized in the costume contest. Is always a wonderful to see. The Q&A panels, top-notch stuff. Top-notch. But I'd recommend Monster Mania and Steel City Con out of the ones that I go to the most. So, uh, from listener Tyler, or as we call him, RoboFuck, over on my other podcasts, what's been your favorite cosplay to do? Okay, Jarrett, this is a multiple-part question. So, uh, Jarrett, what's your favorite cosplay you've ever done?
2: I'm not a cosplayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I make costumes and masks. You might be able to see some behind here, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not a big dresser upper. Um, I don't do that. Besides from Halloween, I guess. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, I would have to
0: say, and I'm not just going to say this because Jarrett's on the show, but, uh, my blacksmith costume with, uh, the mask that he made,
2: which is awesome. By the way, I love those photos. Uh, more to come. Uh,
0: definitely going to enter that into that Monster Mania costume contest for most scary there. And then right he on. says, what was your favorite scary movie as a kid, Jarrett?
2: Um, I really, like, I grew up with AMC Fear Fest coming on every October. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were just marathoning those, you know, Halloween movies. And I would all I, I always remember four and five, four and five, Halloween, four and five. And, uh, those, those were my childhood, you know, they were just always on television, especially around that, you know, that special time of the year. And, um, I'd probably say those are, those are probably my favorite, you know, even though they're not like the best in the series or anything, but I like, I like those movies. I have nostalgia for them. For
0: me, uh, Halloween H2O, Jason Goes to Hell, Jason X were the three movies that I watched a lot, mainly because those are the ones that really introduced me to both of those. Uh I found Halloween 4 through H2O but it doesn't resonate the same because it was my first introduction to Michael uh looking back as an adult uh I see this nostalgia thing that kind of has uh let's say rotted my brain because it makes it me like like these films even though I know I shouldn't it's it's really strange but uh I'd have to say as a as a kid Jason goes to hell and Halloween H2O All right
2: Halloween H2O was the first horror movie I I ever remember seeing So, so uh, I was really young there.
0: But the next question is, what is your best? Well, what is your favorite part about podcasting? Uh, I'll answer that. I would have to say interacting with the fans and then going to conventions and meeting you guys and having uh, talks about horror films with you. It's probably the most uh, satisfying thing that I've witnessed from doing all of this. But thank you. Uh, Next question is from Matt Sterling. How do you feel about the Star Wars fandom? Jarrett, we'll start with that.
2: (laughs) Um, I don't really have an opinion on the fandom. Um, I imagine that it's like any other fandom online, and it's probably really toxic and hateful. But I I don't have any opinion on the fandom. I I used to think I was a huge Star Wars fan until you you get on the internet and you realize you don't know shit. So... (laughs) it, 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 you know i i in i'm indifferent to it i think that the uh i enjoy the prequel trilogies uh, a lot more over the sequel trilogies the sequel trilogies are just a hot mess um at least there is a cohesive vision and story in the prequels um but yeah awesome and then uh
0: for me i feel like it's a toxic toxic fucking place And it's filled of uh, sweaty basement monger hate uh, people who hate women who probably have never felt the touch of a woman. So they sit in their basement all day rubbing themselves with KY jelly and hating on anything that's new that comes from Disney.
2: Yeah, Um, And that's any troll online. You know, it doesn't matter if it's Star Wars fandom or not. It's all over the place on the Internet. So do you believe that there's a rift
0: between OG prequel and sequel fans? Yes. Generations. That's the problem is there's three very different generations of fans there. And there, there is the occasional person who likes all three and just loves them. But that's too and far between because people are so biased towards the films that came out whenever they were growing up.
2: Right. Yeah. I, I mean, like I said, I don't really have an opinion on the fandom. I can only <laughs> speak, I can only speak for myself in saying that I like the prequels, yes. but you have a very, you know, honest point there. You, the, I grew up with the prequels, you know, that, that was my childhood. I saw, you know, episode one in theaters. That was my first Star Wars movie I'd ever saw. I didn't see the original movies before I saw that in the theater in 99 or whatever it was. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know some type of war over prequels and sequels. (laughs) I think it's just silly, but. So Heath Helsing
0: asks, why is it today that all radio bands sound exactly the same?
2: As Mr. Krabs would say, money, (laughs) money, money is why they sound the same. You know, it's, it's the same reason why you get the same conjuring movie every, you know, year, three movies a year, the same movie it's because of money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you play, you, you make, you know, radio friendly music and you know, that it's just going to push money. Like that's, that's just all, that's the sole purpose of, of why you get like, you know, just stuff washed out, you know, movies, Mm -hmm. music, whatever.
0: I agree. And nobody really uh, focuses on the art of things anymore. It's more to uh, what can turn a profit the quickest and what's the what's the most I can get out of doing the least. And I think that that's just like a general mindset that certain generations have. And it's just really sad to see people that have almost zero to no motivational skills. And that's something that we all probably could look back on and see that that's something that we probably
2: shouldn't do moving forward with our lives. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's like, what what was successful in the past? And then they copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. And then that's what you get. You get the same thing over and over again.
0: <laughs> and, and it's always important to work hard and work hard towards your goals. And that's... Can't say that enough. That if you want to do something, the only way you're going to do that is by working hard. And there's no such thing as shortcuts. There is just... Look, seeing your way... To where you need to go and doing it, just going up there, grabbing the bull by the horns and fucking doing it. Yeah, I agree. So speaking of music, what's uh, some of your
2: favorite music that's released this year so far? This year? Oh, I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I like. I like some recent. I like you know some newer music. Um, but a lot of the, a lot of my taste is like from the '80s. Like I don't. Okay, let's talk about that. I, I'm a big guy guy into the 80s. I like the 80s. Uh pop music yeah.
0: and uh rock music. I, I like that stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know. Um yeah, uh, recent like I like I like some recent stuff. Um metal metal music has definitely had that effect, you know, from our last question. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, this copy paste sound. Whatever can sound most appealing to the most broad audience is supposed to do what's you know, supposed to be most successful. So that's what they, they push out. Um, probably the most recent metal band that I really have enjoyed is, um, three teeth. Uh, they, I think they, they have a really, you know, raw industrial sound that, you know, harkens back to like nineties stuff. Um, uh, you know, fire from the gods is also another, you know, decent metal band that's like, you know, recent, I guess. um, but I like a lot of other music too i don't I don't you know subscribe to any one thing ever with anything I'm a pretty
0: eclectic person myself uh the new amity affliction album uh was actually really good and it's just a mishmash of different styles and genres it's uh everyone loves you once you leave them It's a truly wonderful album that really hits home with some of the lyrics you could, they truly portray pain and emotion through of their music it's it's nice to see a band that's able to do that and not fit to like one specific genre because each song is so completely different they can go from a heavier song to a popular song to even electronic at times it's it's nice to see a band that's like that
2: yeah absolutely you don't have enough of it nowadays
0: exactly like we talked about earlier everything's cut and paste and
2: Mm -hmm.
0: sad truth so what's your feelings on uh we actually recorded a little bonus episode for you guys there that like the uh Discussion beyond the discussion, we had a very intense talk about Candyman. And for anybody who doesn't really know much about the new Candyman trailer, it is produced by Jordan Peele. Do we know the director's name?
2: The a female uh, director. Right? Yeah, I think it's Nia something. I know it's, a, I know it's a female director. I know she doesn't have much uh, credited to her name, mm-hmm. but I, I have full faith that she will deliver a, a good movie if Jordan Peele's behind it you know, behind her, you know, helping her out. And, uh,
0: what's your thoughts on that, them giving this the, uh, Halloween 2018 treatment and doing a sequel to the original instead of a remake. Uh,
2: I I don't care if it's good. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't matter. You know, if, if the, I don't, they could change, you know, a bunch of stuff, you know, they could change all types of things, but, you know, as long as it's crucial to, you know, the identity of that would be Candyman. Like, you can't just be comp- this completely different thing. But it, it it doesn't matter as long as it's good. No one's going to complain if it's good. If you make a good movie, then everyone's happy. But, you know, you never, you never, you know, go into movie making trying to please everybody anyways. So. Speaking of that, uh,
0: so you do mask making, you do short filmmaking. making. What are some of uh, your favorite masks that you've created
2: um I really like the nightmare man that's that's one of them it's one of my more favorite masks that I've made it's a design that I pump out often um I did a a short film based off of this character and uh you can see that on YouTube but I don't know. I don't I don't really have too many favorites. I just, you know, it's it, they're like babies, you know. It's it's your stuff, you spend time on it, you create it, and then You can't pick favorites.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. That's that's completely understandable. Okay, so this has been a very strange episode. We started this episode with an interview with uh, Trent Hogg at Killjoy the Clown. Have you ever watched those
2: films, Jarrett? Killjoy. I see. I saw, I think like the first or the second one, Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, it was back in the blockbuster days where, you know, you, you go, you know, I go in the blockbuster with my cousins and we all pick, you know, it was all about the cover art, you know, yeah. Killjoy always had the, the real scary clown on the cover art. So we're like, this has to be good. Um, you know, you, you don't, you don't know what's good or what's not good when you're a child anyways, but, um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I definitely I remember at least I don't know which one I've seen maybe both of them I don't know.
0: Yeah, I just really fell in love with those movies. The I recently uh, w- got to sit down and watch all of them, and watching them, I'm not a really big fan of the first one. The second one, I really start to pick more up for me, and then into the third, fourth, and fifth ones. So they're just there's five. There, <laughs> there's so many of them, and they're so wow. they get progressively like. More cornier and more comedy based, similar to the Nightmare on Elm Street series. So right. you like you start out with someone like a serious attempt at a, at a horror film, and then they get less and less scary. But the comedy and horror aspects get into like the more trauma thing. But I also then Trent Haga being involved, and it's just it's really it's really fun to watch them because it's just sh- straight up disgusting fart humor and funny gross. It's 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 cool. They're they're gory. They're fun to watch, and the acting is just perfect for for the subject matter and i recommend it to anyone right on yeah it, it's cool to see them. so uh yeah this has been a great there's been a lot of support on facebook with people sharing and stuff and uh with the promotional stuff for this episode lot of people showing support for this show and support for me and the do back discussion network this show will be random throughout the week i will try to get a new episode out every week but it is a hefty show to produce and uh there's a lot of preparation but Sorry for the delays today. I know we were supposed to go live at one, ended up doing it six hours later. Shit happens, but guess what? You still got the episode, and that's all that matters. You can – if you probably are listening to this, then you're probably a fan of my other shows, Uh, Gorinmore, Jerk the Curtain, Rabbit Hole, and of course this one. Now, all those are available, as you can see on the crawler on the bottom that says iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and your source for pop culture and much more, dobackdiscussion.net. And if you want to stop looking like shit, go on over to dobackdiscussion.net and pick up some merch so maybe you can finally get laid, you fucking losers. Anyway, guys, thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for commenting. Thank you for sharing. Jarrett. Where can they find you, man?
2: Uh, you can find my my the page for my art, Vonjekyll on art on YouTube, uh, on Facebook, on Instagram. I'm amongst dead things. Uh, I'm pretty sure if you type in Vonjekyll art on Instagram, you'll, you'll get me too. Um, so Vonjekyll art v o n j e k y l l a r t.
0: Excellent. You'll see much more of Jarrett. And his work on the Power Hour as I continue to promote his work, man. You do excellent work and I can't wait to uh, work more with you and get some more of your uh, artwork on me and make costumes out of it, man. That new Crow Eater sculpt is premium.
2: I love it. Thank you very much, man. And congrats on your you know, your new show and thank you for having me.
0: Thank you, man. I appreciate it. So I'm going to uh, drop you out of here and I'm going to finish up the show. And thanks for coming on and I uh, hope to see you soon.
2: No problem.
0: So, guys, thank you for joining me on the premiere episode of the TJ Bowser Power Hour. Normally, we would have the lovely, lusty, and busty Tisa Wicked on here to talk all things horror and to read the fan mail. But she is sick right now, and we're giving her some time off before... She comes back to us. But she'll probably be back either next week or the week after that. Thank you for Jarrett for filling in for her this week. And I hope to have more special guests like that in the future like we did with Trent Haga. More interviews. Of course, this entire show's concept was created by Jeremy Brown from Brown Space Films. He was the creator of Friday the 13th Vengeance and the recent Nightmare and Elm Street fan film Up All Night. Shout out to Jeremy Brown and everyone over at Brown Space Films. My buddy Jason Brooks my close friend Peter Anthony, Riley Lorden over at Slash and Cast, Tisa Wicked, of course, from Wicked Wednesdays on the Do-Back Discussion Network, the lovely makeup artist Julia Ashley, my friend Taylor, my handsome Bobbert, Bobby Amone, uh, Big Johnny D, and my co which is one of my co-hosts over at Gorenmore, Chadwick Chrisman, another Gorenmore Host. Shout out to all the hosts over at Box Office Banter and Duback Sports. I love you guys. Thank you for staying on the network and producing content week in and week out. Thank you for all of my listeners out there and supporters of the network. I appreciate you, and this show wouldn't be possible if you guys didn't come on here and listen to me rant and ramble. I promise you a new episode of Jerk the Curtain will be coming out soon. Corey and I need to get our asses in here and make some more sweet content for you all, uh, but yeah, all of that will be coming down the pipeline. More episodes of the Power Hour to come out in the following weeks. This weekend, I will be at Monster Mania 45. Come meet and greet me, guys. Come say hi, get a picture, see the blacksmith in person, get your skull crushed, meet the Goramore people, meet Wicked Wednesdays host Tisa Wicked, meet some of the other people from the Duback Discussion Network. Meet people over at 13 Gallows Lane. What else? What else do I have to say? Meet Peter Anthony. Meet Slash and Cast. Jason Brooks might show up. Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th. Vengeance. Also, make sure to check out all the other shows on the Do Back Discussion Podcast Network. I appreciate all of you for listening. This is TJ Bowser signing off. Roll that outro footage, motherfucker.